Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcord, and today we have a fabulous guest. We are going to be speaking with Lou Adler. Lou got a whiff of corporate BS and turned the recruitment industry on its head. He invented what's now famously known as the performance-based hiring model. With over 40 years in the recruiting industry, Lou's company, The Adler Group, has trained over 40,000 hiring managers and placed over 1,500 executives for many of the fastest growing companies with clients including Disney, General Dynamics, and Paycom. Welcome to the show, Lou. Great. Thank you very much for having me, Kristen. Look forward to chatting with you. Yeah, me too. You got a, a lot of uh, a lot of history here, and and that's where I want to start with you, Lou, because um, even I was really going into your longer bio and your career history and all of the different areas you've worked in is quite fascinating. Um, so, as a starting point, can you give our audience an opportunity to get to know a little bit about you, your journey and story, and what got you to the work that you're doing in the world? Well, you got to remember, I've been doing this for. 55 years. So it can't, I'll, I'll try to make it very, very short, yes. uh, which I, I'll make it. I talk fast. I'm from New York. <laughs> so I can, talk fast. I can get half hour talking two or three minutes, but, <laughs> um, but actually I started out as an engineer um, and it was in Vietnam and worked in missile guidance systems. And then I got into manufacturing and uh, high-tech electronics and automotive. Uh, and I was actually running a manufacturing company when I was 30, 32 years old. But I hated the group president. He and I just clashed. He sh- showed up every other week. Uh, we yelled and screamed at each other. I quit. And then his, my boss's boss said, no, don't quit. I'll take care of it. And he didn't take care of it. And so I actually gave six months notice. Uh, and I told him I turned the company around and give me my bonus and I'm still leaving. Uh, and I was starting to use these recruiters and they had a good life. I could see that. And my, they invited my wife and I to one of their parties at a house and my wife, would drive home, you should become a recruiter. And I already kind of thinking about it. Yeah. So I did it. I just quit and I didn't have to. I was offered another job as being another division general manager. And I said, nah, this corporate stuff is kind of BSE. Yeah. Um, I'd been there and done that and wasn't sure I wanted to deal with the politics. So I became a recruiter, but the key difference was I had a manufacturing and an engineering and a finance and accounting background. Yes. So when I looked at recruiting, I looked at it as a business process, not just interviewing, not just recruiting. It was the whole bit. You had to look at the whole thing as a business process. And over the years, I honed that business process. Uh, but I already, when I started doing the recruiting stuff, I already knew these this, these jobs because I had been exposed to so many different kind of work environments. And part it relates to your stuff is I work with some remarkable leaders. I mean, I, as a kid, I was dealing with people who were the whiz kids, people who eventually became chairman of Fortune 100 companies. So early on in my career, I was dealing with some exceptional people. Um, so I started saying, ah, this is what it takes to be exceptional. So it, And I only knew the work. So it was this kind of knowledge that I had. And then I, 
the knowledge of manufacturing business process, hey, let's put all these pieces together. And you actually, it can be somewhat efficient, even though you have human nature and personalities and judgments, there's still a core of it that can be scientific and business-like overlaid with some of the human behavioral stuff. And that's what eventually became performance-based hiring. So that's yeah. the 55-year story. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, and it makes so much sense uh, when you were starting to see. And and I always talk about the, both the art and the science to hiring. And so I'm glad that you spoke to that. There's a lot of things that can be happen. And I want to get into some of the things even around the emotional bias and unconscious biases and all that kind of stuff. But as a starting point, let's just talk for some people, they might not be familiar with the performance-based hiring model. So let's just help people understand what's, what is that? What looks different with the performance-based hiring model? Well, let me give a story to describe it. So my Love first that. search assignment, which was 44 years ago, 1978, yeah. was for a plant manager in the automotive industry. And the president had a, at the time, a pretty traditional job description, need 10 to 15 years experience, persons probably 35 to 45, had to have an engineering background, had to have heavy experience in these kinds of uh, manufacturing processes and selling to these kinds of companies and industries and pretty traditional. And I looked at this list and this is my first assignment. And I, I told the president whom I knew, uh, I said, Mike, this is not a job description. This is a person description. Right. A job doesn't have skills, experience, and competencies. A job is stuff that people do. What do you want the person to do to be successful? This is the first one I've ever taken. It was just so obvious. Yeah. Um, define the work that you want done. Uh, and he, we said they need to turn around the manufacturing plant. So we spent an hour walking through the manufacturing plant. It was a screwed up plant. The labor was uh, uncontrolled. The manufacturing processes were sloppy. The layout of the plant was bad. There was a lot of scrap. And I had been through so many manufacturing plants that I was very comfortable in that environment. Uh, and I said, I'll find somebody who can turn this around. And the idea was, once you define the work, then you can, uh, you just have to find people who are competent and motivated to do that work in that environment. Total game changer. That opens a talent pool to everybody. I don't know if I need 10 or 15 years experience or a degree from this school or that school. I said, no, they got to be able to do the work. So over the years, I've done 1,500 assignments like that. I didn't wasn't the only person who did them, but certainly been involved in 1,500 job descriptions from staff engineer to president to chairman to board member to VP more. It doesn't matter what the job was. You can always define it as six or seven performance objectives that define the work that needs to be done. And then we look for candidates who can do that work. So that's the second part is, hey, don't talk to everybody in the world. Yeah. Just talk to people. So you have to pre-qualify your candidates. This is the second part. Yeah. Uh, you pre-qualify people. Let's find people who can do this work or similar work who've been recognized for doing it well, because then the high probability the hiring manager would want to see the person. And also the candidate would see the job as a great career move. So we pre-qualify a lot of people before we talk to people. Most recruiters don't do. They just talk to everybody and hopefully they map the skills. But you got to get you and the hiring manager have to be on point with respect to that as a recruiter. The third step is you have to be a good interviewer. Mm -hmm. If you present a candidate to a hiring manager and that hiring manager doesn't think you're very competent, well, yeah. then you haven't done a good job. So I wasn't necessarily a good interviewer up front. Mm. But I started working with some pretty capable people who were good interviewers. And I started sitting in on hundreds and hundreds of interviews. And I said, oh, the best people always ask these same kinds of questions. They dig into the person's accomplishments. So I just started doing that too. 
And then you had to close the deal. So that's the third part is you got to be a good interviewer. The th and it wasn't behavioral interviewing. It was performance-based interviewing. Yeah. Uh, behavioral interviewing isn't deep enough to get what you're, all the fit factors. There's so many things that are missing in behavioral interviewing. It can be fake. So, um, But everyone thinks, oh, this is the greatest thing in the world. No, it, maybe it's okay, but it's not uh, good enough uh, to really be very insightful. And then the fourth piece is you have to close the deal. And you never have enough money on the in the job. The best jobs aren't necessarily the one that pay the most. The best jobs are one that offers the best two to three year career move. Mm. So and they sometimes pay, they, obviously they have to be competitive because you can't lowball it, but but you don't have to be uh, so extreme that you lose sight of the real work because money doesn't motivate people once they get it. It motivates them to accept the offer, but it doesn't motivate them day to day. And that's why we have the great resignation is just too much focus on the start date and not enough on the work. So that's what performance-based hiring is. Define the jobs a series of performance objectives, find people who would see the job as a great move and are competent, interview in depth about their accomplishments and close a deal based on where the person's going to go, not where they've been uh, or what they get on the start date. All of those, you got to look at all of those pieces and you can't optimize any one of them. I mean, you think about, oh, we got the greatest job board in the world. Oh, we got the greatest assessment test, the greatest interview. Yes, but if the best candidates don't apply, you're out of luck. Right. Right. Uh, so, I mean, so you got to kind of, and that's called sub, that's called optimization of a system, not optimization of the sub-steps. And that's the engineering background of, and business process. You got to look at the whole thing at once. And every time you make a change, you got to look at the end result. Hey, will this change actually help you hire better people and attract them? Mm. Well, no, it's a great, it's a better, much better assessment test. It's perfectly accurate. Yeah, but nobody good is ever going to take it. So you got to throw it away. But a PhD would never argue that point because they don't see, they just see their little narrow niche here. Um, so that's in, in, in a nutshell, that's an entire hiring process. Wow. So I want to pull out some of the pieces with what you discussed there. Um, so I'm curious, even when you started talking to hiring managers and helping them to even define the role better and get really clear around, like, what are they doing in the role? Do you find you get any pushback with this? Like once you start to help them understand and educate them, are they, oh, oh God, of course. Yes. That's the key. I mean, if they don't want to do it. And so I'll, I'll make the general statement is I started doing this in 1978. Yeah. There's been a lot of research only because to me, it made common sense. Uh, there's a lot of research, including Google's Project Oxygen, uh, Gallup's Q Q12, which says clarifying expectations up front is the number one driver of of success and understanding and assigning people work they want to do and motivated to do it and support them. I mean, so that's the Q12, uh, Gallup's Q12. I did I just stumbled upon it, mm -hmm. common sense wise. They did the research and validated it. But the point is, I tell when we go our training, I tell hiring managers. This is actually, you think it's a course about hiring, but it's actually a course about being a better manager, clarifying expectations. But I remember one about 20 years ago where I was working with a president of a company and I knew one of the board members because he had been a client. And he said, well, you got to talk to this guy that hiring a VP marketing. And the put you talk about pushback. This president was, he didn't want me in the room. Like, Why is Howard bringing you here? You shouldn't be here. You've never done a search like this. You don't know our industry is a waste of time. Tell me about that. And he was really pushing me back. And I just finally, uh, finally suggested to him, said, Lee, what do you want this person to do over the course of a year? If the board thinks you've really hired an outstanding, outstanding VP marketing, what would this person have accomplished? And prior to that, he said, I needed someone with an MBA from a top school, engineering from a top school, 10 years of doing this. I mean, it was this list, litany of lists. And he said, 
I want someone who can put a three-year product roadmap that can navigate all the changes going on in the internet infrastructure. Uh, I don't want, we've got a hundred engineers. I don't want to bring in many more, but I want to make sure it's focused now. And that's why I need all that, uh, those kinds of skills. So I just looked at him. I said, Lee, let me ask you this. If I could find someone who can do that work, but has a different mix of skills and experience, maybe, I think they have to have an engineering background and a business background, but maybe not from the same schools and maybe not length, but they absolutely have to be able to put this product roadmap in a very complicated, uh, dynamic, changing internet and uh, technical environment. He said, would you at least see the person? He said, absolutely. So once I convinced the manager to look at outcomes as performance, uh, it gave them a decision criteria that was different than 10 years of this and five years of this and personality traits. So that was really the bridge maker. That specific client, he only used our search firm subsequent to that. I mean, it was just like, yeah. it was obvious. So of course I got to do this. Yeah. But most managers are smart enough to recognize they just don't know how to do it. Um, so by just saying, hey, let's draw a timeline. What does a person need to do to be successful? Uh, and I didn't know how to do it at first either. I mean, I kind of would say it was logical to me when I did that first assignment and we got better at it, but it was really clear that you had to clarify expectations up front and then put a timeline of how the steps uh, come together. And that's how we interview candidates. We just walk, we almost reverse engineering that. Hey, Kirsten, tell me, Kirsten, tell me about your biggest accomplishment related to turning a plant around. Yeah. How did you get there? What'd you have to solve? Walk me through the whole step-by-step -step, step process. So the interview is actually just a reverse engineering of uh, building a performance-based job description, just seeing if candidates have done something similar. Which makes so much sense because now they're speaking to exactly what they're going to um, be doing in the role. And I, I, one of the things I say so often that hiring managers don't get right, even when they hire the person, is really setting expectations once they're even in the role and what that's going to look like. Um, one thing I'm curious when you say that, so what about if we look at somebody who's uh, just graduated, just getting into the work world, or maybe they've even zigged and zagged. They went in one area, they're moving to another area where they don't necessarily have accomplishments that have been within a work environment. Are you using those opportunities to now probe into accomplishments and how they were developing those tr transferable skills in other capacities besides being yeah, in the work it, world? Yes, it's obviously a little bit different, but I kind of give a story. Now, this is not, this is definitely not a, uh, college grad, but the story was similar. I had a, a search assignment for someone in uh, as a plant manager, VP operations, making a, and I don't want to, I'll just say it was injected molded parts. But this was probably 15 or 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, and I met a candidate who had similar, now I won't say it was similar, had a different manufacturing process, but kind of related, but pretty off the key. Uh, but as I talked to this fellow about how he uh, established and was in the hospital industry and he, he created uh, from scratch, and I think it was in, in Singapore, but it was certainly in Malaysia in that area, set up a whole manufacturing and distribution system worldwide, starting with one plant with 50 people. And he just walked me step by step through the whole process. And the guy was brilliant. The guy was just phenomenal. Uh, this other company who I introduced him they didn't think his back, his experience was appropriate because it was a different industry. Uh, but his thinking skills, his ability to probe and understand environments and problem solve, whatever it was, it was pretty complicated stuff. This guy was as good as they get. It was just perfect. Uh, it turned out that the guy they made the offer to this other company rejected it. So they said, is your candidate still available? Mm. And I, I said, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a month or two months. Let me see. 
and they ultimately hired him. And I knew the guy was great. He there was just no doubt in my mind. He was a clear classic executive. He went in there and he called me about six months later. He was made the president of the company. He was that good. So the idea is comparable problems, comparable thinking is the key. They got to be somewhat similar. So if I was interviewing a younger person, one or two years experience, I would still like to see them being involved in accomplishing things that are relevant. And one thing that I really noticed very early on uh, in dealing, I've interviewed many, many people who had one or two years experience, um, is if they're really good, their peers and hiring managers assign them to very important projects within three to six months. If you're a good software developer, you don't get menial tasks after six months. Your managers, hey, this person's pretty good. I'm going to give them a little bit of stretch. So they assign them stretch jobs. If you're an accountant and after three to six months and you're 22 and a half years old, you just, you're going to one of the public accounting firms and you're a pretty good accountant and they know you've got good team skills and they got know you've got good communication skills. They're kind of pushing you to new clients and tougher accounting problems. Happens in every single field. If you're a good sales rep, you come out of college, you go through the sales training program and you ace it and and they give you a couple of accounts and you start making your numbers and clients start liking you. Well, then your sales manager, this person can going to make quota. They start pushing you to tougher accounts because they know you're good. So I look for those things with people only one or two years experience. Turns out you can kind of find that with somebody just in college. Only I'm talking to some of my old college mates. They had jobs where... Uh, even as undergrads, they had jobs where they get into leadership positions. It might have been more, I mean, running a restaurant and running the shift at night and handling that, uh, taking on a project and being part of a group that uh, raised $50,000 for some charity. So you can start seeing these things as opposed to someone just going through school and studying. So you look for that versatility and those kinds of things that you can see, but it's relevant and regardless of age. I got to work a little bit harder if the experience isn't identical, but there's comparable experience. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry for that long story, but I give stories. No, it's good. And it's my my experience as well when it's been uh, those kind of settings. The other thing I'm curious about when we start to bring in on the show, we talk a lot about uh, business outcomes and results and performance, but we also talked, uh, it's not at the expense of what I will call the human skills, which are things like emotional intelligence. And so we could have someone, I, I sometimes refer them uh, refer to them as the brilliant a-holes who are actually really good at making things happen and achieving the business outcomes, but they're not very good at playing nicely with the other humans. And as you know, in order to be able to make things happen. So of course, when you're talking, having them share the stories, you're, I'm sure paying attention to how they describe things, but, um, and what else are you paying attention to in order to see whether they have those uh, emotional intelligence skills that they're going to be able to work well with other humans and create an empowering environment where people, there's good communication happening. Well, the simple thing is, is I dig into their team projects they've worked on. So it'd be Kristen, tell me, you know, when you got there to the company, what kind of projects were you on? Who was on the team? Uh, just what, and what did you do with that team? And as a result of being on that team, what happened after that? Oh, you were man. I see you became a manager. How did you get that management job? Uh, and any, did you hire any of those people? How did you hire them? What happened as a result uh, when you went to company B? Did you bring any of those people? How did you build a team? So what I really spend, when I dig into a person's accomplishment, I'm looking at the people that person worked with, who they work with, how they got on the team. Uh, did you get any recognition from that team? Uh, so I'm really focusing on it. But I remember, and this is probably about 
six or seven years ago, I was a, a CEO of a small company guy, probably only 23 or 24, but he had some money and he was a very brilliant young man. Uh, and he, he said, I'm interviewing. And he calls me up. He was in London. He called me, Lou, I'm interviewing this guy for a VP of sales. He's about 40 years old. How do I determine out if he's not an a-hole? Uh, it's pretty much what he said. Yeah. I said, well, just find out over the years how many people he's rehired from his prior company. Wow. They will tell you. So, uh, and it's, but I actually draw, I have people draw an org. Hey, Kristen, Kristen, draw an org chart. Who was on your team? Who did you work for? Who were the peers? Who did, who worked underneath you? What was the cross-functional stuff? Hey, how did you get to that other team? And then you start seeing that, oh, uh, well, the VP marketing asked me to be on this team to do the product requirements document. You start seeing these kinds of things. Uh, and this is where I say, a lot of people in interviewing think you have to assess that directly. Is this a good person? What's the psychology of this person? I don't, I'm not a psychologist. All I can look at is the people who work with this person for three to five years are the psychologists. They already know. So if you're a good person with good team skills, people want you on their team. Other people in different functions want you on the team. If all you work with is other technical people and that team never grows functionally or size or more importance, you're probably not very good at it. And I'm just going to, maybe I'm wrong, but I call that the detect the Sherlock Holmes approach. You've, if you're a good, you got good interpersonal skills, people from other functions, other teams, other levels, peers want you on their teams and they go out, they go to bat for you. So I'm always looking for those kinds of things during the process. And it's not subtle. I'm looking at it for directly, uh, insightfully, because I got to vouch, if I place a candidate, I guarantee him be there at least a year. And wow. we're right 90% of the time. Uh, wow. and, it's, uh, and you can give anybody an assessment test. If they go through our interview, they will pass the assessment test. Mm -hmm. But not everyone who passed the assessment test will pass our interview. Mm -hmm. And we've done that. And a lot of these people in PhDs all get aggravated with me because I have a different approach. Maybe it's engineering. It's Well, to me, it's common sense. But uh, you know, I just look at their direct results of other people they work with. And you see success there. Uh, it's, it's obvious. You just got to look at it if you want to find it. You don't, you know, separate person has never been successful in his or her life. I'm not going to place that person. Um, they might have all the capability in the world, but I can't figure out what's missing. And I just got to move on to somebody else. As hard as it may sound, I'm not in the rehabilitation business. No, and I, I really actually appreciate that approach because you're right. It does show, it speaks to, if they keep on being asked to be teens, if that person is difficult, they're not wanting to like, oh, <laughs> let's bring that difficult person onto our team so we're set up for success. Absolutely not. And it's the first time I've actually had someone approach it from that perspective. I really love that. And I hope people listening are uh, paying attention to that because it brings me to the next point. Uh, and you've, you've done a great job, Lou, of already speaking and, and organically around some of the interview questions you asked. But I'm just even thinking people might be listening. You made some reference to behavioral-based interview questions and how they're not going deeper. But what you'd like to give people, hiring managers, NHR, or anyone listening, uh, if they really want to conduct some great interviews, what kind of interview questions should they be aware of and what questions should they be avoiding? Well, let me kind of show you on this since you are doing the video. I have what's called here is the magic card. Yeah. The magic card is a trifold yeah. and it's got every single thing you need to know to put a job description together and ask interview questions. Yeah. And I, I call it the magic card because I tell managers, if you only ask questions on this, you will make you'll never make another hiring mistake. Okay. You start making hiring mistakes if you ask questions that aren't on this card. Okay. Uh, so, and this has been legally validated by the number one uh, labor attorney in the country. Okay. The problem is, is so the superficial answer is 
I dig deep into the candidate's major accomplishments related to the job. Chris, and we need to kind of launch a new product line over the next year, and we think we can get 10 to 15% market share. We're a little bit behind the clock in launching the product. If you take over this as the product manager, you have to uh, get us back on timeline so we can launch it by year end. Walk me through something you've accomplished that's most related to that. And I'll really dig deep into it. I'll spend 10 or 15 minutes on that. Hey, part of this is you got to hire, you probably need a team of eight people to do it, but we only have a budget for three people. How are you going to be able to, have you ever done anything like that where you've really been under stress? So I the can, I go really deep into, and I've already, obviously, when I did the assignment with the manager, I knew all these challenges with the job. Uh, and you'll now know them because I'm talking to you about it. You know, hey, if you don't want to do it, I can appreciate that. But this is the reality of the job. Yeah. Uh, so those are some things that I would get into. Uh, and I really focus on both the, the technical issues, the team issues, what were the challenges. And I don't go into, I want to say unprotected areas, but if you get into that, you'll know everything about the candidate and the candidate will know everything about the job. So I think it's ideas to really narrow focus on those uh, issues. In some way, this is a very powerful behavioral interview, but what we, what we use is behavioral fact-finding to get those details. Walk me through you had, in that specific instance where you had to get those three people to uh, do the work of six. Walk me through that. How'd you do it? But it's we always take those behavioral fact-finding questions and put them under the umbrella of an accomplishment. And then we look at those trend of accomplishments over time. So we can say, is this person growing? Are they kind of flattened out? Are they still motivated to do the work? And we try to really focus on that. One other thing that behavioral people don't like, but they're fundamentally wrong, is we ask problem-solving questions. One of the problems you're going to have with this issue is I don't know that we really can get it done given the time frame and given the manufacturing issues we have associated with you in this launch by year end. If you were to get this job, how would you figure out if that's even possible? Mm. Um, what we do is a real, it's not a hypothetical. This is a real problem that we would, if if you were hired, Kristen, we're going to be talking about this two days after you start. So yeah. we got, let's just talk about it now. Yeah. But the process is you, I want to understand your thinking skills and how you'd solve the problem. I don't expect you to give the answer. In fact, if you gave the answer, you're the wrong person. You wouldn't know. A good person knows, oh, God, I didn't realize that. I'd first figure out what this is and this is. And a good person, if you're capable of doing it, you kind of know how you'd solve the problem. You'd even be very confident saying, I, well, I don't know this because I'm not familiar with how you, they do this part and this part and put this together. But here's how I'd figure it out. Well, good. this is that guy that I told you about that I knew was brilliant. That's what he did. He could. I just made the problem big, tougher and tougher. And he said, I don't exactly know, but here's how I'd solve the problem. So so it's not a hypothetical. It's getting into what I call thinking skills. We call that the visualization question. How would you handle this situation? It's realistic. It's not a hypothetical. It's, this is really what we got a real issue. Let's have a give and take discussion on uh, the person's thinking skills. So I call it, uh, and our whole focus is what we call the do-do think. Here's what you say you can do and how you'd solve it, but what have you done that's most comparable? So it's not just the thinking, it's also the accomplishments related to it. And I think uh, behavioral interviews think, oh, I can't ask hypotheticals. But the reality of it is in behavioral interviews, if you don't do a job analysis, you can't ask behavioral questions either. So uh, so I think behavioral interviewing has been watered down to be more uh, hype than substance. But a lot of people with behavioral interviewing backgrounds don't like it, but so be it. 
Well, I think with what you described, I think that you're bringing in the behavior, but you're taking it down another layer. And then it's what you're doing with that information and how you're continuing. I think sometimes they ask the question and then they move on to something else as opposed to really dissecting and going deep into, and then what you were even using for the team examples too, you're starting to make all of these connections that ultimately are, and I love what you said there, Lou, because it's, this is a win-win for the individual and the organization in that as you start to really describe what they're doing the role and they're like actually this is not I don't I don't want to do like this this sounds stressful this is not the kind of work that I want to do great now we're clear this isn't the right role for you and I think sometimes that I've seen this firsthand where they're almost not being transparent and I I I know you Lou from just how we've been talking I'm sure you're asking the hiring managers and really getting the facts and the true story in order for them to be positioning it properly but what I've seen sometimes is well we don't want to let them know about that stuff because then they might not say yes to the role it's like what are you doing (laughs) like you're not you're wasting everyone's time then like why why would you not be transparent Yep. No, I agree. That, what I find interesting is, and this was a long time ago, one of my clients said, we'll give you all our business if you give us a one-year guarantee. And this was something that nobody was doing at the time. Uh, and I really had to think long and hard on it. And I, but having six or eight assignments given to us and we were going to get them at our normal fee, I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. But I then became more religious about what I talk about now in the digging deep it was actually more important to me. And it was, it was a self, it wasn't altruistic. I didn't want to do the work over again. I didn't want to give the money back. So to me, it was a business decision. Why a hiring manager wouldn't do that made no sense to me. Why would you, you're going to, you want these people to be successful. You don't want to hide it from them. Um, So then that also allowed me to understand clients I did not want to work with. Yes. Um, So, uh, but I, I was lucky that I had, our approach was so different, uh, pretty much in your face. Uh, but people appreciated that. And I think part of it is all, even the people I, I had who work with me, uh, we did a lot of finance and accounting, both of them were CPAs. So they, we really knew the subject we were working with. And I think there's a issue with recruiters that don't know the technical component. They can get seduced and snowed and they focus more on just filling jobs. And we fill a lot of jobs with the wrong people and people take jobs for the wrong reasons. And, uh, we have the great resignation. Now we got the great return, the great reshuffle. I mean, it's uh, because of people making short-term decisions when they should be making long-term decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. And I wanted to speak to the show is called inspirational leadership because it is about, and you get the opportunity to do this through working with the hiring manager to get very clear on what they want. And that, that um, inspirational leader, which when I talk about it, but inspirational leader is someone who's successful, right? They get the business outcomes and they create an environment where people feel engaged and enjoy the work. Um, from your end, what are you looking for in terms of you're, you're giving them a one-year guarantee and you're making sure that you're getting these really good leaders. What are some of the qualities that you've seen with the candidates you've placed? You've had a look, have had a long history in many years, getting exposed to a lot of leaders. And then even the leaders you get to talk to all the time within organizations who are hiring these people, what are the common characteristics that you see and really Again, when I say inspiring leaders, they are individuals who are highly successful, highly engaged, and people want to be around them. Well, I think it's, um, so I'm going to go back to a story with a, a client, one of the first clients I had, but he's still a friend of mine. We I see him 
you know, once a month we have breakfast together. Yeah. Um, and I remember about three or four years ago, he was on the board of some company. He was going to talk about leadership. So, and, uh, and it was like two days later, I said, Keith, let me kind of do so. I drew a, uh, an, I drew on a napkin. I said, leadership equals vision plus execution. That's what I just wrote. I said, you have to have a vision of what you're trying to do. Uh, where are you going to take this thing? And that could be a detailed plan, but you got to have a vision and then you got to deliver. You can't just have a vision and talk about it. And this guy was not what you would see as an emotional, uh, extroverted type leader. It's kind of a quiet, introverted guy, but he was remarkable. I placed a lot of people with him uh, because he was this quiet, calm, and capability. You just trusted this person as the right kind of person. And he was great, and he hired right people, and he didn't. He did it deliberately and thoughtfully and was a solid-as-a-rock business person. So, And then we just talked about it, the execution. So if you have to put a plan together, and then you got to execute the plan, you have to deliver it over time. So at some level, that is what it takes. So when I'm looking at people to hire, I'm saying, walk me through how you built your team. Why did you build it this way? How did you choose this? So I don't know that the characteristic, and I work with some pretty remarkable people, uh, but it, they always had that comment. They could see the future. They could see it in some level. And I'm even thinking that I study the uh, Civil War and people don't like General Grant uh, as much as they like General Lee. I don't want to get into the politics of all that. But General Grant had a vision. He could see what was going to happen at every single battle over time and he could execute it. He could just see the thing laying out almost in detail every hour by hour. Most people don't know that. But if you read his books, it's it's pretty clear that that's what he could do. And he said, if this happens, I'm going to do this. If this happens, I'm going to do that. But I so if you look at any leaders in any field, they under, and you look at Steve Jobs, he had a vision of what was going to happen in an execution plan. A lot of people didn't like him as a person. I know some people who work with him. They said it, he was a pain in the ass to deal with, uh, but it was the best experience I've had in my whole life um, because he he understood how to have that vision and how to put it in play and how to execute it. So I, I, I and in a nutshell, I don't know if that's really the answer you wanted, Kristen, but that's kind of what I'm going to give you right now, given the time frame we have. No, and I think it, it, I think you're absolutely right, right? Because if you don't have the vision and you're not helping people understand where they're going towards too, and I think it's also helping people feel a sense of meaning and purpose towards that vision so that they can see how they're contributing to it. And then ultimately, it doesn't matter how great the vision is. If you can't go about executing that vision, then you're not going to get there. So I, I see with what you say there with the vision and execution, I think there's lots of different qualities that, that come along with it. Um so I knew that this was going to be the case that there's, I feel like we could do like several, several other topics. Um, but I, I want to be conscious of, as we start to think about wrapping today's conversation, um, if you were just going to leave whatever's coming up for you as a final thought, right? So these are, there are a lot of leaders who are listening to this podcast anywhere from emerging leaders all the way to CEOs. And, you know, a lot of them are wanting to make sure not only they get the right talent in the door, but they also want to continue to grow and develop. What are some words of wisdom you have for them? I don't know if it'd be words of wisdom, but I would give a practical tactical <laughs> tip. Uh, somebody, I was at some meeting uh, where some president asked me, he said, uh, what question should I ask a candidate? Tell me how should or how much experience should a person have? Or whatever was a superficial question. And I see, said, what's the most important interview question of all time? So I just said, I'll ask it to you. And I'd ask it. And I've asked this thousands of thousands, the thousands of people. You've got 15 minutes only to interview a candidate. Spend those 15 minutes asking the candidate, what's the biggest thing you've ever done in your entire career? 
biggest thing, most important, you've got 15 minutes to tell me all about it. It's on the magic card uh, and you can find it at hirewithyourhead.com. Uh, but it's the idea of dig deep into the candidate's most important accomplishment. Who was on the team? How'd you get the role? What did they learn? What problems did they have? Uh, what the skills did they learn? What skills did they apply? How did they apply them? Uh, walk them through the biggest decision in that biggest job. But if you understand the biggest things this person's ever done in his or her own career, you'd kind of know if there's a fit for the job. And if it was 10 years ago, well, maybe it's not a fit. And if it's two years ago, it could be. Uh, but you learn a lot by asking a candidate, tell them and spend a lot of time and understand it and probe and make sure you understand it. And sometimes uh, the loud people talk a bunch of superficialities, quiet people, you got to work to pull it out. But if you spend a 15 minutes understanding it, you get the right answer and you know if you got a player or not there. So that would be my word of wisdom, but it's uh, more than a word. It's an action that you got to take. Um, um, I think that's really important. And I agree completely. And I also like what you said there around quiet leadership. There's been a lot, a lot of, I actually love Susan Cain's book around quiet leadership. Um, some of the best leaders are not actually the ones who are out there who are extroverted, charismatic. There's a very different way of showing up and they're highly effective at what they do. And they actually have very strong relationships and a lot of loyalty and trust. Um, so I gl I'm glad that you spoke to that as well. Uh, Lou, where can people learn more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, I have written a book and my I've known a number of books, but the fourth edition of Hire With Your Head is out now. If you go to hirewithyourhead.com, you'll find out about our book club. You can and you can reach me through that. It's the easiest one to measure. It's just hirewithyourhead.com. And then you'll see connections to everything else in the world if you want. Uh, you can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn and I'm happy to chat as well and focus on some of these other issues. So that's would be my suggestion to do it uh, briefly. Amazing. And I will make sure we have all of that in the show notes. Um, Lou, thank you so much for being here on the show today. Great, Kristen. Very good. Thank you very much for having me and good luck in helping people become better leaders. Bye now. Thank you so much. And to everyone, wherever you are in the world, we're saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We're sending tons of love. Bye for now. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.